Welcome to our hen house. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne has a wonderful interview with the very dynamic, very cool Los Angeles-based activist Gwenna Hunter, who has been doing outstanding work online and off in spreading the word on animals and veganism and facilitating conversations regarding the connections that people make, sometimes useful, sometimes not, between Black Lives Matter and animal activism. Yeah, I, I really love this interview. She is a powerhouse. And on the bonus segment, uh, if you're a member of the flock, you'll be hearing more of that conversation. I know you're really going to hear that. Uh, and if you're are a member of the flock, you'll get that link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. Of course, you can always find that on the flock Facebook group. I hope you're a member of the flock Facebook group because there's some wonderful conversations going on there. If you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And also we're doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fridays, which is uh, an extra COVID time feature for us. Sometimes it's just the Flock and sometimes we feature special guests, such as our wonderful recent conversation with the recent Our Hen House guest, Alexandra Horowitz, about one of our... Her name is Alexandra Horowitz. <laughs> she spoke about dogs and that is one of our favorite topics. So if you're a member of The Flock, check out The Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. So before we get to the interview, I am recording this sitting at a desk using a mic stand like a like a real like a real grown up, like a real professional because my stuff arrived finally. Your stuff is there and we have established beyond a shadow of a doubt despite your protestations to the contrary last week, that you are not a minimalist. No, unfortunately. You got a lot of crap. I heard someone use the term for themselves maximal, maximalist. I can't even say <laughs> maximalist. How would you say that? I can't say. Maximalist? Any, yeah, maximalist. It was fun. It's kind of like your nephew's name, Maximum. And what if Maximum was a maximalist? That would be super meta. Anyway. It is true that I have way too much crap that for, for one person to have or for like multiple people to have. It's so frustrating. But uh, at least my dogs are having fun. And well, I, from what I've heard, you have you have three little dogs, two of them are chihuahuas. And Birdie, you're the love of your life, mm -hmm. is not really all that happy from what I've heard <laughs> It's fall. I, I just, I cannot picture these dogs in winter in upstate New York. Like the snow is going to be so much deeper than them. But also she's been having like just problems living in the country and, and she got stung by a bee, which is really tragic. She was very upset. She, she doesn't like the rain. She's very upset <laughs> she's by rain. She's fine. I, I don't, she, it may take her some, she's a very dramatic. She's chihuahua. very dramatic. It's true. <laughs> she's like definitely plays into whatever she's feeling to, you know, get a rise out of me. Like whenever I look over, she's staring at me and and she has strong emotions. Yeah, she does. She gets she gets it from me. But yeah, there was this video that you sent me from this duck sanctuary in Vermont. I think it's called Show Sanctuary. Yeah. And, and it was this video of these ducks who like went out, came outside from their like little house 
And it was like, it was the first snow of the season and like all of them came out and then they realized how cold it was and like all of them turned around and went back in. <laughs> and that was pretty much, That's your that was Birdie when it was raining the other day. Like she was like, mother, there is wetness coming from the sky. But anyway, she's fine. She's doing fine. The, the, her being stung by a bee was a very dramatic and sad event, though she was fine, like 1000% fine. But anyway, they, the the dogs went to the or or the chihuahuas went to the movies with us the other night. And if you're shocked now that we went to the movies, I can assure you, sorry, responsible. We went to a drive-in. You have a drive-in in the town that you live in. I think that we have mentioned that before. But have we also mentioned that they they show retro? They their entire well, not their entire, but a lot of their repertoire is retro movies from the 70s and the 80s. Mm-hmm. We went to see Slapshot with Paul Newman. It was actually really good. Though I did fall asleep in the middle. I think the dogs enjoyed it. Yes. It was like, it was a weird experience. Like I haven't been to a drive-in in a while. Mm. It was so fun though. I love going to drive-in. Yeah, we met some friends there. We social distanced, but got together. Mm-hmm. It was really nice. Yeah, we're doing it again next week. It was like the biggest night we're I had. We're just doing it with all the flock because last week it was with in my months. my Gottfried, who's my friend and is in the flock and, is, and Dietrich, who's her partner and is also in the flock. And next week, we're doing it with Gretchen Primack, who's also in the flock. So apparently, if you're in the flock, one of the perks is that we go to the drive-in together. <laughs> so if you- yeah, everybody out there, wherever you are, start on your way to Greenville, New York, and to go to the drive-in. Yeah, it was really fun. I don't know what movies are coming up. I think, uh, oh, the you know, the one with Tom Hanks. Um You've, you've got, got mail. mail, right? You've got mail. Yeah, but we're seeing the yeah. Glorias, which I'm excited about. I think that's about. actually the 90s. You've got mail. I don't think it's the no, 80s. No, it's the 90s. Yeah. But we're seeing the Glorias, which is going to be fabulous. So we'll report back on that. Yeah, because c- they don't just do retro. They also are showing all the movies from what would have been the Woodstock Film Festival, which is cool. Yes, exactly. Anyway, enough of that, because most of you out there can't well, go. Well, the Glorias so, is about which Gloria is Steinem, by the way. Did you know that, right? Because I'm super excited. I think you told me that, yeah, yeah, though I didn't know it before. Yeah. So anyway, aside from that, uh, life sort of goes on, sort of, kind of. I read this article today in the New York Times that I promptly sent to you and you read it too. And it was about this World War II refugee camp for Jews in concentration camps mostly, that were, uh, that was in... Um, a, well, Jews rescued from rescued, concentration right. camps. That was in, uh, a Sw- how do you say that? Oswego? Oswego. Yeah, Oswego, New York, which is kind of near Syracuse. And they, you know, they were, they were the only refugees from World War II that we took in. And it was basically, a lot of them, were they were little children. And so a lot of them were still alive. And they interviewed them. And it was a really powerful article. It's very moving. There yeah. was like there was like a hole in the fence and like people would sneak into, you know, they made friends with the other kids in the neighborhood. And sometimes they would like sneak out and go to the city. And then they followed like they became American citizens and dispensed to like 20 different states. And this article kind of followed the ones who were still around. And I'm getting the chills. <laughs> but, you know, as beautiful as it is, I loved this article. It was also like, really, that was it. We only took one one refugee camp for, for all of World yeah, War II. I don't know whether that was all the refugees who arrived here. But, you know, it was all, the, the only like concerted effort by the government. There was supposed to be this big effort to take in people who had survived the concentration camps. And then it was th- this was like 950 people or so. And after that, that was it. Yeah. Really sad. Like, like, and it just made me think of, you know, what 
like before COVID started, the crisis of last year was like refugees. Still a crisis. I can't imagine that's changed because refugees are still desperate, if not more desperate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's just not at the top of the news. And and I like just the cruelty and certainly in this country, the unbelievable cruelty. And yet we're all at risk of becoming refugees. I mean, look at the fires. How many people have we heard of that we know who are, you know, thinking that they they are going to be moving because they have to because you know where they live has been more or less destroyed like and that's just the tip of the iceberg like we are all at risk of becoming refugees at any moment i think we have to think in those terms mm-hmm. i was reading an article not that this is a you know ad for the new york times but uh, it was a while ago actually and it was about germany you know germany let in really a lot of refugees during the crisis period i guess it was about 2 years ago uh, of Syrians and and others, but a lot of Syrian refugees. You know, Angela Merkel was was uh, she was very enthusiastic about letting people in, and she was heavily criticized by a lot of people. And apparently, it's going really, really well. I mean, it's you know, it's still costing the government money because you know people came in with nothing or whatever. But they're they are well on the way to to becoming, you know. <laughs> productive citizens and and training getting educated learning german training for jobs that, that that germany really needs to be filled and they can't fill uh in-house so to speak and and so while it's not a settled thing it's looking really good so refugees like like i just hate that we have this hideous attitude towards refugees when i feel like i could be a refugee in what like in a second like the world is a dangerous place these days. Mm-hmm. It actually makes, you know, I've been thinking of moving and uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing, but it makes me wonder whether it's foolish to buy a, a house that sits somewhere. Maybe we should all become like the Roma and and uh, and just have travel, you know, have tiny houses that travel so we can move away when when the world starts to fall apart where we are. I'm down. What do you with think? That? Yeah. What do you think? No, I yeah. mean, I want to get, get in on that. the road. Everybody on the road. Where would we go and how would we get there? I don't know. I kind of want to just have... Well, those are the questions. I want to have a net zero home and just like be able to... Well, I would want it to be a net zero tiny home. Yeah, I would like to have a home that's like just stuck in one place. But it's a little scary these days with the hurricanes. Yeah. I think at the moment I'm talking, there are five tropical storms Mm -hmm. brewing in the Atlantic. I mean, I have never heard of that. Mm -hmm. Five at one time. Yeah. The world is crazy. I'm sorry. We're supposed to be innovatively positive, and all I can talk about is crisis. So, uh, but I, you know, I'm just trying to think productively about it. And one of the things that makes me think about it is is animals. Animals migrate. You know, when a place becomes, I mean, a lot of them don't make it. I guess you know, we're we're destroying their habitat and all. But their basic theory is like, well, if it doesn't work here, I'll go somewhere else. And uh, actually, I have an interview coming up, which should be on the next. Uh, Animal Law Podcast with Eric Glitzenstein of the Center for Biological Diversity, one of my favorite lawyers. And it's about a case about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And this is one of our first environmental laws uh, in this country. And as it, as it, the title makes clear, it's, it was a law that implemented a treaty because when you're talking about protecting migratory birds, you can't just have a law in one country that's nonsensical this is an international thing you have to have treaties like these this whole country thing is falling apart 
Like the whole idea that we live in separate countries, it's just falling apart. I know. I, I am mind boggled by like I'm almost so far past the vegan connections for people. Like it 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 seems crazier and crazier that people don't recognize how many of the disasters, the quote unquote natural disasters going on right now, are ultimately tied back to animal agriculture. Totally. But not only are they separated from that reality, they're probably even if they understood it to be true, are more separated than ever from the fact that like this points back to individual behavior. And, you know, it's, I think, well, individual behavior and corporate, I mean, it's not just individual behavior. It's what, what people who want to make money do to serve uh, all these individuals who, you know, want to continue to eat animals or do horrible things to animals. So it's both individual behavior and corporate behavior. Right. And it's it's everything. It's everything. Like the pandemic, obviously, started in a wild animal market. It is hard. It is hard. Spread so, through slaughterhouses. Right. It is hard to, like, really grasp. I, like, we're, we're a country in despair in a lot of ways. And I don't think that, like, from a place of despair, we we necessarily look at our behavior it's more about like looking at everyone else's behavior and i think that that is where the problem lies ultimately in terms of using the pandemic the fires all of it to connect the dots between animal agriculture and our personal consumption habits like it's just sort of like you know there's too much going on and 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 the general public is kind of far removed from what that means for them in terms of lunch because maybe they're too busy wondering if they have to get the hell out of Dodge. You know what I mean? It is all connected, but it might not feel that way on the day-to-day for people, even though it's more and more connected than ever. More and more. It's just every, well, almost everything is connected to what we do to animals. From the pandemic, climate catastrophe, to uh, everything. And, you know, I, I really want to say that our interview, my interview with Gwenna today, like, is really hopeful in indicating that some people are making those connections and and the way she advocates for those connections. And also, like, particularly relevant to what you were saying, this is this is a very hard moment for people to hear anything because everybody's very... Uh, what was the word you used? Not depressed, but but despairing. Despairing, but, yeah. But and she makes the point. She's talking more about the health issue, but that uh, you know, you start talking to people about their personal uh, their personal needs and you know the health implications, and and that can lead to you know much more systemic change. So I think you'll find this. I mean, also she's just a really really positive person i did do the interview before the fires started raging in Mm. in los angeles so we don't talk about that but i doubt that it's got her down because she's a powerhouse and i'm going to cut to that interview in just a moment but before i do we love to support vegan businesses many of whom need extra support right now so we're shouting some of them out each week some of them are places that you already know and love and others you're not familiar with and if you want to take part in Our Hen House Supports Vegan Businesses, go to ourhenhouse.org slash vegan businesses and fill out the form with either a business you 
own or a business you love. And we'll do our best to support our community during this tough time by shouting them out. So with that in mind, do you want to get us going? Yeah, actually, our first our first submission is not actually a vegan business. But I did. (laughs) I did want to mention it. This is a submission from Kaylee Rhodes of Charlie's Acres Sanctuary. And she's pointing out what a difficult time that they have had. Uh, This is in Sonoma, California. So they're probably having an even more difficult time now. And one of the things they did was uh, since they had to give up their tours and other events, they did virtual tours. But, you know, that's kind of waning now. And, you know, it kind of doesn't surprise me. Like, I find that a lot of the real virtual things that we turn to with such vigor at the beginning of this don't seem as important now. Anyway, this is a reminder not only for Charlie's Acres Farm Sanctuary, but for all of the sanctuaries and for your local sanctuary. They're probably doing similar things. I know mine are. They really, really need this support. So get online and mm. do a little tour, see some animals, which is always a treat, and send them a little money. Speaking of which, we always make sure to include at least one Black-owned company. And this week, it's Aziza's Herbal Green Popcorn. That sounds so good. It does. Go to herbalgreenpopcorn.com. Aziza's Herbal Green Popcorn is a spirulina-based green popcorn combined with herbs and spices to give you the kick you love. And it can be shipped anywhere in the U.S., which is perfect. I want it shipped here. They are a vegan family-owned and operated business. Hot air popped are made with organic kernels. Every batch is made with the intent to heal its consumer, providing green life force energy for the body to become energized, which I need, while supplying a feeling of complete fullness. So you can actually get 10% off your first order with the discount code green pop. So check that out. Our next business is also black owned. It's called Hella Nuts. And they make, this sounds so good. I want this so much. They make vegan walnut meat. And this is Mieko Scott and her daughter, Kamari. They're chefs in San Francisco. I hope they're still uh, breathing. And they're passionate about providing plant-based meals. Uh, They're soy-free if you're a person who, you know, doesn't tolerate soy well. And they started selling their vegan walnut meat at pop events and it just took off. So now it's called Hella Nuts Ground Walnut Meat. It's already seasoned. I just can't wait to try this. You can buy one or five Mm. pound bags of this walnut meat and you can use it in tacos and burgers and everything. And you can find them at that shell a nut. That that's (laughs) (laughs) that's that's hella nuts. One word. That's hella H E L L A is hella. That's hella nuts.com. When you look at it, it does look like it says that shell a nut. Well, and also nuts have shells, so it it That's true. I wasn't being stupid. No, you are. I wasn't. Our final business today is Lay Artisan, which you can learn about at www.layartisanbakery.com. Lay Artisan Creative Bakery is in Miami Beach, but it's actually a classic French bakery offering a wide selection of sweet and savory treats inspired by the owner's memories of her visits to France and her professional training in French cuisine. All of their products are vegan, some are gluten-free, and they are all very delicious. Among their offerings, I can't... Oh, please, don't... I, Pan au chocolat. Thank you. Eggless croissants and quiches and seasonal changing selection of tarts, chocolate bonbon, and petit gâteau. And I... All right. I've been to this place. When I was in Miami Beach, which was right... It was either January, late January. It was probably late January. I don't think it was into February. It was before this had started, the nightmare had started. 
And I was in Miami Beach for a conference and I went to this place and oh my God, I cannot believe that they offer nationwide shipping because (laughs) I am now in serious trouble. This was beyond belief. Their pastries. I've never seen anything like them. So that's L'Artisan Bakery Shop, L-A-R-T-I-S-A-N-E Bakery Shop, all one word, dot com. Try it. Oh, my God. You're not going to believe it. I remember you talking about it. Yeah. Well, now let's get to this interview with Gwenna Hunter. And I'm frequently jealous about the interviews you get to do. And this is definitely on the list. I wish I had done this, but I'm sure you I did know, a I think you were originally job. scheduled to, and yeah. then you were moving. I was, tra- so I was moving. I did it, and I'm so glad I got to do it. <laughs> not nice. Gwenna Hunter is a powerhouse and a connector. Is she ever? She is the founder of the Facebook groups Vegans for Black Lives Matter and Vegans of LA, coordinator of community engagement and events for Greater Los Angeles at Vegan Outreach, and serves on the board of the California Black Health Network. You're going to hear Gwenna Hunter as interviewed by Marianne Sullivan right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Gwenna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) I am excited too. And like when I started looking into what you were doing, I realized you seem to have 15 jobs. (laughs) We're going to try to cover some of the stuff you do. I'm not sure we can get to everything. But what I really want to start with is, is the Facebook group one of the Facebook groups that you run, and that's Vegans mm-hmm. for Black Lives Matter, because, of course, that's an issue that's on everybody's minds right now. And you have a lot to say about it. And you've seen a lot of what other people have to say about yeah. it, which is a particularly useful place to be in. And But first of all, how do these things go together for you personally? How do you connect veganism with Black Lives Matter? Well, the way I connected when I first joined the animal rights movement, which was pretty much synonymous is during the same time that I became vegan. Actually, I joined the animal rights movement before I was vegan. Um, I was vegetarian, didn't think there was a difference, <laughs> a huge difference. And um, to me, I felt like people that cared so much about animals, I had never come across this before. So when I met all these people here in LA and they were caring about the animals and sensitive and marching and protesting, I was like, oh my God, a group of empathic, empathetic people that just care about the planet. So to me, that automatically translated into caring about other forms of oppression. But what I soon found out was that that was not the case. It was usually a hard stop at the animals and there wasn't much conversation about what was going on with police brutality, you know, what was happening in the news with other situations. It would be like, we just talk, deal with the animals. Most vegans that I knew at the time didn't even like people, you know, and so it's like <laughs> <laughs> I, I admit I'm occasionally one of them. <laughs> Me too. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cry. I have my I have my days. <laughs> Look, there's times where I wake up and I'm like, how in the hell did I get on this planet? Like, yeah, it doesn't yeah. does make sense to me some of the things that happen. So I get the, you know, 
sometimes not liking humans, but at the same time, we are inside of a human body and we are clothed in human flesh. So it's like, we got to care a little bit because, you know, we don't want to leave the animals, especially our domesticated animals that we care about. Like I hear people often say, this planet would be better off without us. I hope something happens and an asteroid drops and they just knock humans out and the animals live. It's like, well, what about the ones that we've domesticated, the ones that count on us and depend on us? You know, I believe that animals have a certain level of consciousness where they're, they come to this planet to help heal us. It's not just us helping rescue and heal them. It's it's a it's a it's a circle of compassion where they're doing the same thing for us. So, yeah, I'm getting ready to go on to another tangent. So you better stop me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was really good. I love that answer. I love those connections. I you know, and you know, I say that I have my days where I hate humans, and I think we all do. But we're here. We're one of them. And I, you know. Injustice is injustice, no matter where it is. So I really love the work that you're doing. What specifically prompted you to start this group and to start this discussion that you've you've commenced on on Facebook? So I'm just going to be really transparent. What happened was one day I was standing by the sink and all of a sudden it was literally almost like a supernatural download because I've had groups in the past and having a group requires a lot of nurturing. And you have to give it a lot of attention and you have to constantly interact and talk to people. And I was not interested in doing that anymore. I'm like, I do not like I have a Vegans of LA Facebook page. That's all the online interaction I really want to deal with. So having a group was not something that I was looking to manifest. But literally, it just literally came into my head. Vegans for Black Lives Matter. I'm a bit of a procrastinator, but for some reason, it was almost like I was a robot. I went right to my computer. I was like, great idea. Created the group, put a photo in there. Thought, okay, I'll probably get maybe 250 people at best for this group. And we can talk about things and have a great time. And I just left the group open, not thinking anything. And the next day, there were literally 500 people in the group. And I was like, holy, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> you, and, you can say shit on this Okay, on this good. Podcast. Good, because I do like a curse. <laughs> I'm like, holy shit, what the hell? 500 people. And, you know, and interestingly enough, it was mostly all white people and mostly white women. And it was people that were just, because I didn't, I had no idea of how I was going to create the group and what it was going to be about. I even created the about section, like, hey, this was a divine thought. I have no idea what I'm doing, but let's create this group together. So literally I was being transparent, like, hey, this was just a divine thought. Let's make this group together. And I tell you the first two weeks, I probably cried a lot. Um, It was very stressful. I didn't sleep well. I was physically ill from absorbing all of the articles and people's opinions and reading the arguments and the drama. And it was so heavy. And plus I was still dealing with my own heaviness of the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement taking off and still trying to, you know, heal from what happened to George Floyd and just being honest with my emotions and letting everything out. So it was a heavy two weeks and getting a lot of criticism 
for having the group. Really? You got oh, criticism God. online? <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. People were inboxing me saying, I'm leaving this group. Someone yelled at me. Uh, people are telling police and me, I'm out of here. What is this group about? And it was literally like day three. And it's like, you know what? If someone moves into a house on Monday, do you expect a damn house to be ready by Wednesday? It's like, give somebody a damn opportunity to unpack <laughs> and to get it together. There's so much toxicity online. I mean, there's the toxicity in general in conversations about race. There's definitely toxicity in conversations about animals and veganism. And then online, there's toxicity. So you yeah. kind of brought all of that toxicity together. Yes. So like more specifically, what kind of examples did you see of this? And you have a great tone. You come across as as kind and 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 willing to listen, and even in our brief conversation so far, I'm I'm getting a warm feeling for you. So how how did you manage this? And what kind of toxicity were you getting, and 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 what did you do about it to keep your group going? So on both sides. So what I found because at first I was ready to have a I wanted to kumbaya it out. Yeah, I just wanted us I'm to with you. Love, yeah. And I just wanted us to hug and I just wanted it to be all positivity and love and this, that. And yeah, that was my grand idea. Yeah. Like you said earlier, you were born on the wrong planet, but yeah, you're on, you're on this one. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously to bring that love and, and all of that healing to the planet. But what I realized in trying to bring the Kumbaya, people did not want it. People wanted to be angry. People wanted, and I, what I had to realize, I had to equate this with being vegan. Oftentimes, if someone has been vegan, you know, for any period of time, or if you feel very superior in your vegan, like we always do it at times, you sometimes will talk to people from the level that you are. And usually the person that's not vegan really can't relate to what it is you're saying instead of talking to them to the at the level of where they are to where they can mm. relate. And that's what I was doing. I was in a year 3000, you know, ready to talk about some other things that I've seen and experienced in my dreams and in my vision for the world and for the planet. And people were like, no, I, I, I want to talk about this. I'm, I'm, I'm pissed. I'm angry. So I had to realize I need to walk with people in this journey and not skip ahead. So I had to literally see myself as like a group of people walking instead of me, you know, three miles ahead saying, hurry up and catch up, just slow down and go back and walk with them. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to join everybody in their anger and in their frustration and in their pain. Because what I realized for myself was that I had been suppressing it as well. And I was skipping over it and I just wanted to go straight to the light. And so I was trying to skip through my darkness. And I'm like, you know what? I need to I need to allow myself to feel just like they are. And so giving myself permission to do that was like a another like uh, almost like a supernatural awakening, allowing myself to feel the hurt and feel the pain of everything that I've ignored throughout the years of all the racism that, that I've allowed to just slide all the mean things that I've allowed to just pretend I didn't hear just so that I can, you know, function and go to work and keep my job and not be angry. So yeah, that was a, a tough choice. I didn't know it would, what that meant, allowing myself to feel it's been a, a journey and I'm still in it. <laughs> yeah, that is a really, really powerful insight that 
you know, if you are a, an upbeat person, if you're trying to be an upbeat person, yeah, I mean, you can really bury a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, I think that people do that also with animals. You know, they 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 just uh, they they hear something bad about animals and they just put it aside and keep moving yeah. on with their lives. But it doesn't do any of us favors to to do that, uh, whether it's about racism or animals or anything else to bury okay. those feelings. Why do you think the Black Lives Movement has gained such traction all of us? Well, I don't know whether you should say it's all of a sudden. Sometimes things are building for a very long time and then they happen and it feels all of a sudden. But why now? So, yeah, I feel like it had a lot to do with the fact that COVID was happening and that people were just kind of already frustrated. You know, people trying to get unemployment, not getting unemployment, not being able to work, concerned about putting food on the table, paying their bills. And then to watch this happen and then there not be any type of accountability. And I think black people in general already have we, we, we already have a temperature to where it's like right. It's brewing all the time. Something is always brewing to where we're like, what's going to be the next thing? What you know what I mean? Like we're already on guard constantly. So when this happened, it was just like like a volcano. You know what? That's it. And it was interesting because I'm someone that believes in something called collective consciousness. So I believe that we're all connected humans. I don't care about what, what avatar you came here in, what, what race, the game that you're playing. Um, I do believe that we are all connected and that we are all one, but there was something when this happened, every black person I knew said fuck that they're like that's it like we it was almost like everybody took the same pill and felt the same exact amount of rage and we were like you know what burn this shit down that's and I felt it and I've never been like that and my energy felt it and I'm like I'm sick of this <laughs> and it was like there are black people that I know that are like preachers and that are super spiritual and all of them, I was checking in with them and they were like, you know what? Burn the shit down. Let them fuck this whole place up. And we were like, it was, it, I've never experienced anything like it. It was like, we all had a shift in consciousness to where we were like, that's it. We're not taking this anymore. And I'm someone that has always played it kind of like safe. I've never wanted to let my, all of my blackness out because it can be a little bit scary. And so I'm like, I've always kind of taken the high road to where I'm just like, you know what? I'm gonna let you have that last word. I'm gonna let you go ahead and get away with that. Because if I actually gave it to you the way you deserve, I would probably scare the shit out of you. So I've always been very, very nice and very kind and even um, intentionally passive. This time I was like, nope, not doing it. And it felt good. <laughs> I'm not even gonna lie. It felt good to be honest and to feel and to tell the truth and to unleash. And that is what the world felt. Like all of us were unleashing all of our rage that we had been, that had been pent up and that we had been holding in since childhood, you know, since we can all remember. And it was finally coming out. And I, I've had friends that say, oh, I don't understand the purpose of Black Lives Matter. I'm like, be, be glad that there's a Black Lives Matter because they're the sponge for our anger. 
they're the forefront, them marching and doing the work that they're doing gives us a little bit of healing and cools our anger down. If there wasn't a Black Lives Matter and George Floyd would have happened, I don't I don't know what what would be going on on this planet right now. It, it would probably be complete chaos and true anarchy. I think that's a really beautiful point and really is a salute to the activists who have been doing this Black Lives Matter for years without getting this kind of attention. And when this rage erupted, there was a framework because of all that work that had been done that, you know, wasn't paid as much attention to. And I think it's really a salute to activism. I'm just wondering, since since you are an activist on both fronts, whether you think this kind of change can ever happen for animals as well? Actually, to be honest with you, I actually believe that there will be animal liberation before racial equality. I think that animal liberation, and, and actually it's weird because for the first time in my life, when I first got in this movement, people were like, oh, you know, animal liberation, hopefully in this lifetime. I'm like, that'll never happen in this lifetime. But I actually think that it will to a, to an extent because of how quickly things are evolving in animal rights. And I have to say that, you know, I, I take a page out of the animal rights activists who've been doing this for years, because one of the things I noticed, like they're consistent, they're unapologetic, they're fearless, and they cover so many different areas. You have you know, one group that's covering legislation and and they stay on top of it. Then you have one group that does rescues and they don't play games. They don't they don't care what the consequences are. They're on top of it. You have one group that is constantly in the streets and they're speaking. You have one group that's constantly online and, and promoting it. So one of the things that I that I've seen in the animal rights movement is like, don't don't stop. And I think with with the civil rights movement, what will usually happen is someone will get murdered, someone gets shot, someone get killed, and then everything slows down and stops. And then whatever we've accomplished up until that point, we pretend to be satisfied with it. And then it goes on for another, you know, 50, 60 years, and then something sparks it, and then we start over, and then we go on. But with this one, I'm like, you know what? We can't afford to have that happen. Even if something tragic does happen, we have to keep going. And we have to stay consistent and stay strong and basically keep our feet on their necks, in a sense, to make sure that equality happens. But yeah, because equality, like it can happen with like laws and stuff, but you can't change people's hearts. That has to happen through personal evolution. You know, new people come into the planet that have kinder, wider hearts. But yeah, I, I do think that you know, right now, how old am I? I forget all the time. I think I'm 48. I am 48. Because <laughs> I, I usually give myself one more year up so I can get used to it so I don't get shocked <laughs> by my age. Well, I'm um, looking I'm looking at your face right now, and I would never have said you were 48. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I still feel like I'm like 20. Like in my mind, I'm still like a yeah. teenager. <laughs> I'm 70. And believe me, that doesn't change at all. Oh, like, wow. like you, don't get, you don't get older in your head. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm starting to understand that. I'm like, wow, I still feel like a like a kid. But I think that by the time, you know, I'm 80, if I'm still here, I think we will have animal liberation. Because if people stay on the pace that they're doing it, 
this way and new activists keep coming on the scene and more people keep going vegan, there's no reason that we shouldn't have animal liberation. Well, I love that optimism. I, I And I don't like that pessimism about racial equality, but, but, and I hope you're wrong, but, and I do feel I like so there's too. a consciousness shift. Like it's true that people have to change, but sometimes people can change. It's just, uh, these are very, very, they're both very, very deep matters that have been going on for a long time. What is your messaging around the use of all lives matter, particularly when it's done by animal activists who are trying to bring the animals forward? How do you message about that? Sometimes not in a very nice way. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. They, I call them Twitter fingers. It's when your fingers get, you see something like, you know, and they, you, know you, find, <laughs> you cut somebody out 20 different ways and 20 languages, but I'm trying not to do that anymore. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes that's the way to go. Yeah. You know, last night I had a situation and, you know, I was, I was gentle, but I was firm. She understood what I, where I was coming from. But when I see animal rights activists do it, especially ones that are in positions of power, or that have a platform or that, you know, do amazing things with their um, activism. I have a hard time being compassionate in how I respond to them because I figure if anybody should get this, it should definitely be an animal rights activist. Because one thing that, you know, I noticed in the, when I first joined the movement is that a lot of white vegans were always quick to say, make the comparison of animal oppression and slavery, always doing that, making the like, hey, here's a comparison. Well, if you get the comparison, why are you saying all lives matter? And if you're still saying all lives matter, you're either very disconnected from the conversations that are happening and that are evolving, or you are a racist and, and you just haven't come to terms with it. Because the truth is all lives do matter. You are right. There is no argument. Every life matters. Human, every conscious life matters. You are right. Your life matters. This is just a movement that is highlighting Black lives because there's so much injustice. There's no accountability often when a Black life is taken for just breathing, for just walking down the street for jogging, for being at the park, for driving their car, for having a broken tail life, for not using their turn signal, people being shot that are unarmed, and then the police officer not having any accountability. That's why we're saying Black Lives Matter has nothing to do with white people's lives not mattering. And I've had this conversation with people and they'll still turn around and be like, but all lives matter. I'm like, you know what? You have <laughs> cognitive dissonance. You're not even listening. Like you're, you're, no. you're, you're, you're not even functioning. And so now I'm to the point when I do see people say it to me, I look at it kind of like, you know what? There's the lights aren't on. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like I'm not even interested in, cause you know, if I'm going to engage, I like really intellectual conversations, even if they're high level disagreements, I, I still like it to be intellectual. I don't want to argue with someone that has, you know, the mind of a, of a three-year-old and not, and not to knock a three-year-old, but you know, cause a three-year-old can give you a good argument, but it's just like, I'm not going to sit up there and argue with someone or try to have a conversation with someone at this point that's saying all lives matter because there's yeah. something it's, it's not happening. Something's not, not clicking. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that it's just, I, I can see having 
kind of instinctively said that as an animal activist right at the beginning. But yeah. it's where way past the point where people should be understanding when yeah. when you say black lives matter, you're not saying other lives don't matter. You're just making the point that black lives matter. We're past the point where people should should not understand what that's about. Yes. And it's so it's like everybody is explaining this. You know, black people are explaining it. I see so many yeah. white allies that are explaining this to people, posting about it, putting on their platforms. And it's like there's no reason at this point, if especially if you're an animal rights activist, to, to keep saying that. It's, and it's hurtful. It's very hurtful. I to think see it's that. such a powerful thing to explain that something is hurtful. And that yeah. even, even if it's coming with anger, to explain that the reason for that anger is pain. And I think too often people don't pick up on that. Another thing that I really want to talk to you about is mm -hmm. there has been a lot of talk and I'm this good talk and well-meant talk within many farmed animal advocacy organizations about the importance of bringing more black people, indigenous people, people of color into the quote unquote movement. But at the same time, black veganism seems to be this incredibly vibrant and fast growing movement of its own. Of course, there are connections, but 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 there's an independence there. So they're kind of parallel. Uh, what are your thoughts on on how these how these things interact? Well, you mean as far as like like white organizations wanting to bring more black people into their organization or use it, put them on their platform. Yeah. And I don't want to call them white organizations, but I see, you know, there is a point there. Organizations that have so many, uh, that most of the employees are white and in, 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 for very good reasons, they want, they don't want that to continue. But I, I feel sometimes that there's not this recognition that there is like animal rights is not a white, a white thing. Right. I've always said, you drop me down anywhere in the world, no matter where it is, there'll be somebody who will get it about animals, you know? That's <laughs> like, right. People get it about animals. Some people, not everybody. Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't, it certainly has nothing to do with race or nationality or anything. So, I, it, it, all right, I'm getting a little lost in my, in, in my speech giving here. <laughs> <laughs> you got me started. <laughs> so, I, I, I think it's a really good thing for organizations that have primarily been staffed by by people who are white to uh, think, let's change this. Let's change this. But I hate to think that 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 would be failing to recognize that there is this incredibly vibrant movement of black veganism. And I'm just wondering about whether you feel the same way that that uh, in bringing these things together, we can't ignore the fact or it, it, should we bring these things together or or should these be independent movements? Are they the same thing? Are they different things? And how do we keep black veganism like growing the, in the incredible way it has been growing? Well, <clears throat> black veganism is growing really organically because so many people are not wanting to live the same lives that their mothers and fathers and that their grandparents lived as far as health health is concerned. You know, we don't want the gout. We don't want the diabetes. We don't want, you know, when I was growing up, I remember like if you were, you know, in your forties, you kind, like people seem like they look like they had kind of already kind of given up, you know, on, on themselves when I was growing up, like in the seventies or whatever. And if you were like 50, that was like considered old and people kind of like didn't, 
But now, like, you look at a 50-year-old, you're like, what? You're 50? You know, you got a 70-year-old, you're like, what? You're 70? Like, people are looking so amazing now because people are actually really caring about their health. And I think as people, especially uh, people of color, Black people, are learning more about what they're eating and who they are eating because this is now becoming, you know, a regular conversation in Black households. I know when I first became vegan, I didn't know one single Black vegan because I just kind of got placed right in the middle of a mostly white uh, vegan community, animal rights community. And then I start meeting a few here and there. But when I did meet Black vegans, it was mostly just about like being plant-based. It wasn't about um, animal rights. But that's a great place to evolve from, you know, starting with self. Exactly. Yeah. And caring about, you know, what you're putting in your body and, and how you're eating. And, you know, even for me right now, I'm still evolving in the health space of veganism and learning how to eat better as a vegan and eat a more whole food, plant-based diet and things like that. But for me, when I started it, I kind of got right into the consciousness of animals. So that's where, you know, veganism was born for me in particular. And so I would do things like, so like I worked for Vegan Outreach, I would go to different black communities and nonprofit organizations, and I would talk to them, bring food, bring traditional black cuisine, but in plant-based form, because people can get it better if they can eat their food that they're used to, that tastes good, but there are no animals in it. And then I would talk to them about the consciousness of animals and not necessarily animal rights, because that's definitely not where you want to start your conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good thought. Well, let me tell you, I learned the hard way because I was kind of taught how to give a talk. And the very first time, like my supervisor was like there with me and I was like in Watts at a library giving a talk you know, in front of like black people that were like really living in the inner, inner city. And here I am shaking in my boots. It's the first time I'm speaking in front of people. And I started talking about animal rights and yeah, I got cussed out. And it was probably the best experience I could have had because I'm like, you know what? I can't talk from you guys' point of view anymore. I have to talk from my point of view to my community in a way that makes sense for me to talk. Yeah, and and what it like I I really hear you that it, it it's a little hard to come down on people who are living really hard lives about animal rights. That's just a really tough starting point. So what is your starting point, and what is your way in? So my way in is I like to talk about. So I will talk a, a bit about health. I'm not a scholar on on health, but I will talk about my experience. And, you know, I grew up in a food desert. I didn't even know I grew up in a food desert until last year. And I was like, wait a minute, I totally grew up in a food desert and didn't even realize it. So I'll talk about, you know, where I grew up and how it was a food desert and, you know, me eating out of convenience stores and Popeye's chicken, eating that uh, for dinner, um, you know, constantly and things like that and how it affected, you know, me. And then one of the things that I evolved into doing uh, was asking people if, and I'd say, I do it like this. I say, is anybody here ever experienced suffering? And I'll give off some examples. Has anyone ever experienced suffering in the form of abuse? Have you ever been abused emotionally, physically, psychologically? You know, 
not a single person will have their hand on. Everyone can relate to some form of oppression or some form of abuse. And I will go into a conversation about how animals are conscious. And I will tell them like, you know what? I had no clue. And, you know, and I'll try to talk at a level not where I'm like, animals are conscious and they're this, that, and the other. I'll be like, look, when I came to the uh, realization that animals were actually conscious and I'll say, you know, did you know that mother cows, that they're pregnant for nine months, just like, like us women and women would be like, what? Nine months. I'm like, yes, they're pregnant for nine months. Just like us. I was like, I had no idea about this information until just a few months ago, had no clue. I said, do you know, when they take her son, they take him for veal. And she actually mourns and she cries for him and she chases after after the person taking her son and they're going to consume them and put him on a on somebody's plate. I was like, I had no idea that cows even loved their children. And so I talked to people from that level and I kind of talked to them as if I just found out, you know, last week um, instead of like I've known this information my whole life. So when I talk to them about that, and then I also will tell people like, you know, we actually, we, we eat their children. We eat the animal's organs. We go inside their bodies and we eat their organs. We eat their necks. We eat their butts. We actually eat another animal's breast and we call that healthy. I was like, can you imagine somebody eating, wanting to eat your breast and consider that healthy? And so people are like, what? Oh, like it, people start like giggling. People start saying, oh my God, that's disgusting. Oh my God, I can't believe you put it that way. But I'm like, am I telling a lie? You know, we, we eat their backs and then get this. We take the skin off their body and we wear it. We make purses out of their skin. We make shoes out of their bodies. And so when you talk to people kind of in that way, they start to visualize it. And then they can also, you know, visualize the suffering that they're participating in. Because I know as a, you know, pre-vegan, I never, it never even came across my radar that I was creating suffering. I never even thought that a cow had a thought. I didn't think that they, I just thought they were meat on feet. Had no idea that they could even have a conscious thought. And so, when I have these type of conversations, it, it starts to jar and trigger. And, you know, I kind of leave them with that. <laughs> yeah. It's very powerful communication, Glenna. Mm-hmm. It really is. And then when you combine it, and I think this is what's so, what really helps us all, when you combine it with this, with the message you started out with, this is actually good for you. This is, you know, this will make you healthier. And then bring in the information about uh, the animals. I think that makes it all so much more powerful. We're not really asking you to sacrifice because it's tough to ask people who are living real hard lives to sacrifice. Yeah, But you kind of make it clear that it's not really a sacrifice. Yeah. And I do. And I let them know, like as a vegan and, and because I'm, I'm not, you know, a size two vegan, you know, I'll show off. I'm like, Hey, do I look like I'm missing a single solitary meal? Absolutely not. Like <laughs> yeah. I'll let people know, like I eat amazing. I, I am with you. I am with you. <laughs> so I let people know, like I eat amazing. I said, I don't miss a beat. I said, everything that I ate as a non-vegan, I eat as a vegan. I'm like, I can still have a burger. I can still have a steak. I can still have a hot dog. 
I can still have uh, chicken. I can still have seafood. I can still have all these things, but they're made from plants. And I'm like, you know, and I tell people, you know, uh, plant-based food has evolved. Yes. Back in the eighties and nineties, it tastes like you were eating tires, you know, cause a lot of older people, if they're in the, in the conversation, they're like, uh-uh, I tried that before and it was horrible. So I let them know like, <laughs> no, this food has evolved. Like the, the technology behind plant-based food will blow your mind. That's why I always accompany these, these talks with food. Absolutely. So that, and, you know, we, we would, you know, foot the bill for the food and not just give like samples, give people full meals. And they would be like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I remember once I had a chef that prepared a holiday meal um, at Watts. I went there again <laughs> and um, he did, you know, Southern, he did Mac, uh, mac and cheese, collard greens. He did garden chicken. Um, we had cornbread. And- You're making me hungry. <laughs> and he used liquid smoke and the collard greens. And people were like, it tastes like ham hocks. Our, our liquid end- smoke is a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> and they're like, it tastes like ham hocks right here. How did you get this? It tastes like ham hocks. And he showed his like liquid smoke. They're like, what is liquid smoke? And so, and we, and so what I would usually do is like, we would shop from the neighborhood of where, we would do, you know, do these talks so that people could go to food for less and find this on their own, you know. So um, put a lot of love and thought into these situations and also just sharing with people, you know, your own challenges. Like when I would have a, when I have a chef or someone that accompanies these, it's always someone that can relate to the community. So the person that made that food, he grew up in the inner city and he shared his stories of like, abuse and living a rough life and a, and a rough childhood and how eating plant-based actually can help you think better and how it gives you clarity and how you don't have that sinking feeling in your body after you've had such a heavy, you know, carnage type of meal. So we would try to hit them with all different avenues of the benefits, you know, without saying you've got to, or you're bad if, and I let people know like, yes, it, of course, the you know, people are like, oh, did you not like? I'm like, oh, I loved how, you know, animals taste. I'm like, I didn't become vegan because I thought it tastes horrible. Came vegan because I realized that I was eating someone and not something. And so the conversations are always they're always different at each each event. Of course, yeah, people bring and, and you do this work on behalf of vegan outreach. Is that right? Yes, on behalf of vegan outreach. So you know, now it's it's changed because we're not doing these type of things because of COVID. Yeah, and of course. It's it's of course. it's switched over even since then. But so now we do a program that I am so proud of and that I love so much. It's called it's really simple name. It's called Vegan Food Aid. And so what we do right now is like for me, I'm responsible for Los Angeles. So every Thursday, um, I go to a community called Black Women for Wellness. They're in Lamert Park in Los Angeles. And we um, have a produce guy that comes and brings tons of produce. We bag up about 72 bags of groceries, vegan groceries, organic produce. And we have hot food vendors come out and provide takeout. And so their community comes out from like 12 to 1 and picks up their bags and picks up their hot food. And, you know, every week they're like, what you got this week? You know, and they're like, oh, last week that food was amazing. Can't believe that was vegan. So we do that for Black Women for Wellness on Thursdays. And then once a month, I go out to Black Lives Matter 
and we provide groceries like about two little it's been like 250 um, bags of produce and groceries and hot food for their community meeting that they have once a month. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. You're doing so many different things and reaching, really reaching people who like it's the prime audience, people who really need to hear this message for the health reasons and are open to it. And particularly in these times, do you think people are more open to, to change this change in the air? Um, in a lot of different ways. And do you think that's a moment that activists really have to grab? Yes. Like even myself, I'm like, I have to level up. And, you know, I've started walk running. I'm like, all right, it's time for me to level up. It's like, I I like being thick, but it's time to like, you know, tighten the thickness in just a little bit, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think people want to feel good. Because with all this that's happening, there's times where I feel I'm, I'm a, I consider myself to be a very empathic person. So oftentimes I will absorb feelings and absorb things and forget that it's really the weight of the world that I'm feeling. I notice when I eat cleaner and healthier, so when I'm eating more fruits and eating things that are not as processed and not as cooked and I'm exercising and I'm walking, when something dark really hits me, it doesn't stick as hard yeah. and, and as long. But if I'm like not getting out, not getting any sunlight, not moving, and I'm eating junk food all the time, when I do get hit with a dark emotion, sometimes it just, it lays on me like a, a wet cloth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I so hear you. Like there is such a connection between our mind and our body. Yes. Uh, and it, we have to take care of our body if we if we want to keep our minds working Yeah. In a, in a way that, that, yeah, if we don't want to sink into depression or whatever. All right, I'm going to have to let you go soon because I could talk to you all day, but we both have, um, or you have stuff to do. I don't know whether I do. <laughs> There's not much going on these days. But but before I let you go, you had mentioned, but we didn't really get into Vegans of LA. And this is another super successful Facebook group, which you run uh, along with your 12 other jobs. And, and uh just tell us a little bit about the about the 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 group, but but really about the LA vegan scene, both out of not in COVID and in COVID. So with Vegans of LA, um, it was a page Facebook that I started because I started doing like meetups, and I was not vegan. Um, I was vegetarian, but I thought Vegetarians of LA was too long, and I'm like, yeah, people probably. <laughs> yeah, I did. Literally, I thought like vegetarians of LA doesn't sound as good as vegans of LA. <laughs> and so I was just, I created the page just so that I could post like when I have a meetup or something like that. And I started just like posting like little articles and little fun memes and things like that. And I had, I was so green. Like I had no idea what speciesism meant. I'm like, why are people saying that? Like, what does that mean? Like, I didn't understand the lingo. I didn't understand anything about veganism, like nothing. And as time went on, I eventually did become a vegan. I was just posting just very general articles. I didn't know any black vegans. I didn't really see black stories. So everything was just pretty much general. And then one day I posted a trailer for the movie Invisible Vegan, which is by Jasmine Lavia. Yeah, absolutely. Great movie. And yes, excellent movie. And so I posted the trailer and I think I had at the time 1,500 followers on the page. The next day I had like 8,000. And I was like, what? And the video like went viral on the page. 
and it was nothing but black people. I'm like, oh my God, this, where y'all been? <laughs> I was like, I've been looking for y'all my whole life. <laughs> so, and so from then I was like, okay, I think I found my niche and my audience. And so I started posting, I find, I started, you know, going on YouTube and posting, you know, information about black from black vegans. And the more I started researching, I'm like, oh my God, there's a whole slew of black vegans that are doing it and that are like amazing. And so that's been my niche. And I've always included oppression about what's going on in the black community on my page. And people's like, Hey, I'm following it. Why, what does that have to do with veganism? Like it has everything to do with veganism, because if you are about ending oppression, you are about ending oppression. Well said. Period. I, I know there are, there are a zillion black owned vegan businesses in LA. How are they doing? In this time, they seem to be doing really well. So, That's great to hear. Yeah, because what I do with the the Black Lives Matter um, event I do once a month and the Black Women for Wellness, most of the time I try to make sure I patronize a Black owned business, and so I make sure I try to keep that money, you know, with them. But I will also I check with other organizations. So if you've donated, if you have a business like Sun Cafe donated to Black Lives Matter, so we're going to be using them next week and feasting off of them next week. So, you know, anyone that is about Black Lives Matter or that is people of color or that cares about Black lives, those are the businesses that I want to patronize. Uh, like Chef Babette, her business is still doing really well. Love Chef Babette. Yeah. Even though even though she's about my age and she looks oh my 30 God. years younger than I am. But, but what the hell? Oh, my God. My boyfriend <laughs> drools over her. I'm like, hey, quit looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so there's a new restaurant like i've used amin's pure foods and baba vegans cafe but there's a new one solely vegan that just opened up in hollywood they're um, a black soul food vegan restaurant that just opened so i'm like it's amazing that someone would open during these times and from understanding they're doing really well that's great to hear yeah well, you are doing really well, too, Gwena. Like, you have a lot going on. Before I let you go, just give people an idea of where of some of the many places they can find you. So you can find me on Vegans of LA on Facebook. It's, it's kind of clumped as one word, but it's Vegans of LA. And then on Instagram, I have Vegans of LA and Vegans of Los Angeles. Okay. So find me on there for... I'm, I'm, I get a little burnt out sometimes. So you may see me go a week and a half without posting anything on Instagram. <laughs> oh, believe me, don't. Uh, social media has gotten completely beyond me. So I know so, I can't yeah, handle it. It's, it's overwhelming. <laughs> and where can people find Vegans for Black Lives Matter? It's a private group. So just type it in on Facebook and under the category group. Make sure you answer the three questions. If you do not, because we've had to like slow down. We. We have about 4,100 um, members of the group, but if we did not have the questions and if we didn't become strict, we would probably have about 15,000 people in the group. We turned down mm -hmm. probably 90% of the people that try to come in because we want to make sure that people are coming in with good intentions because sometimes we have some infiltrators that will come in there and that will try to start some shit and try to take the whole group out. Yeah. Social media. It's, yeah. it's a nightmare. So we're very strict. If you just opened up an account last week, you're not getting in. I don't care if you answer all the questions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, we're very strict. Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be completely qualified. We'll answer those questions and we'll be really interested in, in participating and experiencing that content. So thanks so much. 
Yeah, we have great group discussions. This week we're watching the movie 13th and we're going to have a, dis- a group discussion in one of the rooms inside the group and talk about what we've learned. So we're, we're not just sitting there just posting. We're actually having really deep conversations in there. That's really great to hear and such a valuable service you're providing a place for people to have that conversation in a reasonably safe space. I mean, yes. people I'm sure can state their opinions oh, and yeah. sometimes Others may be offended, but it's not abusive. No. Um, and that's the important thing. And social media so often, you know, just collapses under its own weight. Yes. Of being too angry. So it's a huge service that you're providing, Gwena. Thanks so much for doing it. Thanks so much for telling us about it today. It's been great. No problem. Thank you. It's a great interview. Some good questions. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Jasmine. And this is Marianne. And we have a very important announcement for you today, which is to please join the flock already. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we've never, we've probably never mentioned that before, right? I don't think we have, no. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like now is more important than ever to join it because now is when we really need media that is speaking the truth about animals. And that is what our hen house does. So by joining the flock, you are supporting media such as our hen house to keep going. And we literally could not do it without your support. So for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become part of this super special insider crew, The Flock. Yes. And in addition to supporting us, which is really the reason we hope that you will join The Flock, we try to make it worth your while. And I think we really do because we've got this terrific Flock page, which is a private Facebook page only for members of The Flock. And the conversations there of late have been outstanding. So good. I know. It's like a private only Facebook group just for the flock. It's thought provoking. It's supportive. It's encouraging. And there's lots of resources there that I didn't know about. And so I'm just always so grateful to our conversations there. And in addition to that, we provide bonus flock only content every single week. It's like an additional little podcast just for you, for the flock. And it's fantastic. Yeah, actually, you know, it was it was a big decision to start doing that because it was a lot of extra work right in the beginning. But now that we've got it going, I'm so glad we did because I really love those little interviews. They, I think they're turning out great. They really are. They are sort of blowing my mind every week, week after week. So join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org, clicking on donate. And for $10 a month or $100 a year, you will become a flock member. And we will also be offering you exclusive access to our undying love and affection. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks if you're in the flock already. And thanks if you're about to be. Thank you. Anxieties are rising. Local gone loco marketing claims. There is dissension within the ranks in the meat industry. This is from the meat business column by Gregory Bloom. And he is upset. He's upset about how deceptive and ridiculous other people in the meat industry are. So their anxieties are actually rising about each other, not just about us. All right. Telling, this is how he starts off, telling people what they want to hear is, yes, a popular practice in politics, but it's also, dare I sadly say, all too prevalent in the meat industry. Well, no shit, Gregory. No shit. He's not talking about all of the many things that uh, the meat industry says uh, that people want to hear that are completely untrue. He's talking about this specific thing of labeling things as local. And he asks these questions. Do you think that meat produced in a USDA plant in Iowa should be sold in retail markets in Illinois with shelf tags that say I'm local just because the meat company has a sales office in Illinois? 
Well, of course not. But, you know, I don't think meat should be sold in Iowa or in Illinois at all. So, uh, but yeah, obviously deceptive. Local claim, you know, we've known for a long time that these local claims are nonsensical. They don't have anything to do with anything. Now, the meat industry is upset about it itself. The similar question, do you think that the same I'm local retail shelf tag should be placed on chicken that's grown and processed in Georgia, but repackaged in Colorado and given a new label with a new brand identity at the latter processing plant? I mean, this really is like sleazy. I agree with Gregory. This is really sleazy. Not any more sleazy than most of what the meat industry does, but geez, geez. The reason he's upset is because he's, he lost business. He does, you know, he sells meat in some capacity or whatever to a retail chain because they wanted to buy local items. And it turned out that the items that they wanted to buy that were labeled local weren't actually local. <laughs> the only local thing about the product is that the meat company has a sales office in Colorado. That is pretty hilarious or horrifying, depending on your point of view. So, um, you know, he's upset. Good for good for Gregory in this tiny, tiny little area uh, because he lost money here and he doesn't know how to compete with misleading and exaggerated claims in this particular tiny aspect of the meat industry's misleading and exaggerated claims. He's calling on his industry to be truthful and accurate in marketing claims made on our products. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that should change everything. When the truth of mislabeling inevitably comes out, it will only damage the reputation of our industry in the long run. Well, the animal rights movement has been trying, like with video, to get the truth out about uh, what's really going on in the meat industry and really hasn't accomplished all that much. But yeah, I'm all for truth in advertising, Gregory. I'm with you. From Amanda Radke on Beef Daily. There are the Beef Daily column in Beef Magazine. Um, six headlines with updates on activists, politicians, and fake meats. She hates those fake meats. This is very useful when she does these conglomerations of articles because we get to hear a lot. She, she does a good job. She doesn't have quite the same perspective, but she does a good job. She starts off by pointing out that she spent the Labor Day weekend at the South Dakota State Fair, and she had a great time. <laughs> you know, As she points out, the event garnered plenty of media attention for going on as scheduled without uh, with few, if any, precautions. And although it will be a few weeks before we know whether it was a super spreader of COVID-19 or not, I, for one, am grateful that our governor, Christy Nome, is standing strong and allowing businesses and people make decisions freely without government mandates. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well, you know, I ain't going to the South Dakota State Fair, so I won't get involved. Anybody who did was very foolish, I think. But, you know, in a few weeks, we'll know whether we're all going to die or whether all the old people are going to die. All right. One thing that she didn't see there was a fake meat vendor. Well, what a shocker that the South Dakota State Fair doesn't have any fake meat vendors at their uh, COVID-soaked uh, event. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm, I'm just shocked. But Amanda thought it was the trendy must-have food item. Maybe not in my state. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Definitely. All right. She's uh, once again uh, concerned about fake meats, even not having seen them at the South Dakota State Fair. And so she's hunting down these articles, all of which I think are things that are giving her anxiety and which, uh, you know, mostly I pretty much am happy about. All right. This is an article by Dane Rivera for Uprox. All the major fast food chains serving plant-based meat in 2020. 
And apparently in this article, he writes, it's crazy to think that in just five years, the Beyond and Impossible burgers have gone from mere eco-conscious curiosities to fast food menu staples as the two brands continue to fight for dominance in the American fast food space. Well, that, that warms my heart. All right, next one that she's upset about. Alternative meat startup is hoping a 3D printed steak to upend the meat industry. And this was an article that she found on Business Insider. I think I saw a picture of this thing and it did look not very appetizing. And according to Business Insider, it may look like Play-Doh. Jeez, I haven't thought about Play-Doh in a long time. But it's uh, made by the Israeli alternative meat startup, Redefine Meat. And, you know, they've made a steak. Good for them. They might need to improve the appearance. You know, maybe they don't. Uh, Maybe it's fine. Pretty crazy stuff going on out there. All right, here's another feature from Amanda. HSUS abandons another animal center. Now, I have, this is from Humane Watch, which is, you know, this outfit that, like, criticizes everything HSUS does. And, you know, I know there's some criticism of HSUS within the animal rights movement, too. But I really have no idea what happened here. But that's the headline. HSUS abandons another animal center. And apparently, they were funding uh, this wildlife center in Ramona, California. And it's now going to be run by the San Diego Humane Society, which is not affiliated. In what way is that abandoning it? I mean, maybe they did. I don't know. I don't know the facts here, but I wouldn't trust Humane Watch to have them right. All right. San Francisco passes resolution to reduce consumption of animal products. The Animal Ag Alliance is writing about this, and they are pretty damn upset. This is in city jails and public hospitals. The initiative was largely pushed and supported by activists with direct action everywhere. Right. (laughs) That one really must be upsetting. Here's another one that must be pretty upsetting. Colorado Governor Polis appoints anti-livestock activists to boards that deal with farmers, ranchers. Isn't this a disgrace? Absolutely a disgrace. According to this writer, Jeff Rice, who wrote this for the Sterling Journal Advocate, if Colorado Governor Jared Polis had deliberately set out to alienate Colorado's fourth largest industry, he couldn't have done a better job than he seems to have done unwittingly over the past two years. All right, let's think about what the governor did. He decided that the foxes should not be in charge of the hen house. And so he put like people who aren't like uh, pro-livestock, pro-ranching, like in the ranching business, whatever, on this board that oversees this industry. What a crazy thought that an industry should not govern itself. All right, next, Farm Site Security. Smile, you're on camera by Loretta Sorensen for the Capital Journal. Okay, so she wrote this article indicating all of the emerging technologies like mapping that have helped trespassers and culprits gain remote access to rural farm sites. So she says that what what these factory farms should do, she doesn't call them factory farms, is that they should themselves be using camera security systems to capture information or alert property owners to unusual activity any time of the day or night. Well, this does not seem like a really innovative suggestion, but it is sad to think that they, you know, that probably most of them have not bothered spending the money on any cameras in these facilities because, you know, maybe the only thing that they should be looking out for is activists. Maybe they should be looking out for whether their animals are okay. But no, we just lock them up and leave them there and then sell the dead bodies, sell the bodies of the ones that survive. That, that was long because Amanda really didn't does my work for me. Now, this isn't really a rising anxiety. It's sort of a um, an anxiety that arose and somebody did something about. But if you haven't seen this article, I wanted you to know about it. This is from sky.com. 
And it says, uh, the title of the article is, quote, I saw animals in cages, stressed and suffering, unquote. Former fur trade boss calls for UK sales ban. Yeah, pretty crazy, right? Mike Moser, who has visited fur farms across the globe, said sales of fur have no place in modern society. So this guy used to be a major player in the fur business. He was He's the former CEO of the British Fur Trade Association. And what he wants, I mean, there have been bans on fur farming in the UK, but they still are allowed to sell fur. And he thinks that's ridiculous. He calls the industry anachronistic, barbaric, and unnecessary. Well, people, I guess people can change. So he wants fur sales. Apparently the UK is still importing fox, rabbit, mink, raccoon, and chinchilla, and he wants them, them banned. He says it's inconsistent, ambiguous, and hypocritical. So sometimes those anxieties can rise among the industry, and sometimes they can actually change minds, which is pretty nice to hear. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content and join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. Be safe out there. Social distance. Stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.